Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Lisa Gaufman. Lisa is Assistant Professor of Russian Discourse and Politics at the University of Groningen. Lisa focuses in her work on nationalism, identity and threat perceptions, in particular in the Russian context, and is also author of the book Security Threats and Public Perception, Digital Russia and the Ukraine Crisis. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Lisa. Thank you. It's nice to be here. We can see that Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine is not only about territory, but also seems to have a kind of an ideological dimension. To give some context to our discussion, can you outline the way in which Putin's regime or Putin himself has set himself up as a kind of an ideological alternative to what could be conceived as a, you know, quote unquote, progressive liberal West. If we try to trace the current ideological underpinnings of the Putin regime, I would actually go back to about uh, 2012. So it's right after the um, quite massive protests against electoral fraud in Moscow took place around Russia as well. And uh, most researchers actually trace this so-called conservative turn around 2012. So when he was elected uh, with massive fraud as well. And that's also the time when um, there was a big shift in, uh, in ideological underpinnings of the regime in the first place. So this is the time when there was a lot of talk about the um, sovereign morality, for example. And uh, Gulnaz Sharafuddinov traces this really well in, in her article about um, how there was a switch from sovereign democracy to sovereign morality in 2012. So this is the time when we, there was a Pussy Riot trial, for instance, the new legislation about the ban on propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations among minors. So this is the time we're talking about. Actually, if you trace this all the way back there, it's a kind of a logical continuation, the way he was trying to position himself as the defender of the conservative and the real values, the way the Russian political elite often sees themselves. And uh, Putin specifically has been uh, espousing a lot of the, um, frankly, far-right talking points uh, since 2012. So a little trick that I do with my students, for example, is I give them several quotes by uh, far-right or conservative politicians around the world from like Marjorie Taylor Greene from the US or from Trump or from uh, Kaczynski or from Thierry Baudet here in the Netherlands and from Putin. And they often cannot really tell them apart because there's just a lot of ideological similarities among those um, far-right conservative talking points. And this is also something that uh, Marlene Lariel, for example, uh, pointed out in her article uh, that's called Mirror Game. So the way how American conservatism is actually very similar to the Russian conservatism. And this is actually the kind of ideological underpinnings that we have been seeing since 2012, that they've been trying to push to legitimize a lot of the repressive legislation in Russia, for example, or the the way the internet has been restricted in Russia. So a lot of this was pretty much justified through uh, defending of the real values. So, And this is the real conservative values as opposed to the corrupt values of the West. And if, for example, in 2012, we could 
could see some of the mentionings of the so-called gay Europa trope, so the gay Europe, the degraded Europe. Now it's pretty much a mainstream to talk about how the sexual minority rights is something that's uh, the downfall of Europe and that is something that uh, Russian troops are supposedly defending the Donbass from. So this is something that we've heard, for example, from the Russian uh, Orthodox Church, the Petra Kirill speech about the gay pride parade. So this is pretty much what they've been trying to push forward. And another issue here is also, especially if you uh, take a look at the latest Putin speech after the sham referenda and uh, the annexation speech on, on Friday, he was parroting a lot of the um, anti-colonial rhetoric, actually. So uh, a lot of the talking points that he made were actually, in some ways, something that you could see among the leftist circle. So it's again, that shows that there is no coherent ideology per se. This is just he's trying to dress up some kind of, to dress his land grab into some kind of ideological padding that would resonate among some people that might still support him. So this would be the far right in many European countries, or it might be the far left or anti-colonial crowd in the global south. And this is also something that we've seen, for instance, uh, among the Kremlin trolls, so the uh, paid account that are being operated by Russian operators who are uh, spreading information online. So we've seen that there's a lot of evidence that they're trying to link together with the global South countries and talk about the new colonialism or NATO expansion or American imperialism. So this is some kind of tropes that would be very much understandable to the global South audience, connect sort of the Russian position to those tropes as well. Mm -hmm. How much traction has that gained within Russia? You know, you mentioned that as almost a kind of a new strategy from Putin post-2012 to maintain a grip on power and control within Russia. Has that been successful? Like, do those narratives have appeal within the Russian context? Well, it's hard to say how successful that is, because obviously it's very difficult to conduct public opinion polls that are somehow related to uh, the perception of the state uh, or the head of state in Russia for a really long time. Even the last independent polling stations have been declared foreign agents. So it's very hard to actually gauge public opinion that well. But um, there is evidence that there was some response and some resonance to the narratives that the Kremlin was pushing. And uh, in the way we could see that at the time was with the way that the uh, Pussy Riot sentencing was, for example, perceived uh, by the majority of Russians. It was also in part motivated by the fact that the mass media that were covering the trial and the and the punk prayer, they were concentrating on, on not the contents of the actual punk prayer. So the, and the contents was, to remind you, is uh, Godmother, please chase Putin away. So this was a very much anti-regime punk prayer. But what the uh, mass media focused at that time, they were pretty much talking about how there was a behavior unbecoming of a woman and they were pretty much Satanist and something like that. So this, again, echoes of those tropes you can hear now in the annexation speech in Putin in 2022. So I'm not sure that uh, the current speeches are resonating as well as they used to. But back uh, in the day, I think, especially with the Pussy Riot case, uh, there was some support for the for the sentencing, for instance. And as in uh, many conservative countries, there was, there was also some support for the ban on propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations, for example. So it's hard to say how widespread that support is uh, right now especially, but another issue was also the very stringent prosecution of people who were uh, trying to voice their position to those kind of things. And even the um, law on decriminalization of domestic violence that actually created quite a bit of opposition among the Russian population, especially female activists, feminist activists, even among the Duma members themselves, 
but it still went through. It still went ahead. That again, like it was 2018, 2019. And again, that already showed that the popular opposition meant very, very little in counteracting the kind of agenda that the Kremlin was pushing at the time. Mm-hmm. Even after, you know, quite disastrous military venture into Ukraine that we've seen this year, Putin still has a kind of appeal for some constituencies outside of Russia. And I'm wondering whether you think that kind of framing of who Putin is or what his regime stands for, that's a central component to that appeal. I would say that there are different parts of his persona that are being appealing to different parts of the audiences abroad. So if we're talking about, let's say, far-right appeal, a lot of them are talking about Russia being the lost white country, for instance, and that there's you know, a lot of anti-Semitic tropes that are used in relation to Ukraine, for instance, and the way the Western support the Western countries support Ukraine. So there's a lot of that happening, I think, especially among the far-right circles. And we can see that in the Netherlands really well, actually. On the other hand, there's also some of them, I would say, kind of priority of some of the news. Obviously, in, in the global south, for instance, the war against Ukraine might not be the top news as well. So it, and it might be also seen sometimes as this kind of conflict between great powers. Another issue here is, again, by trying to connect to some of the anti-imperialist uh, tropes in his speeches, Putin is really trying to appeal to some of the countries that he might still get some support from the governments. On the other hand, a lot of his appeal has waned in some ways, especially related to the fact that he's like the strongman, the second army of Europe. And all, like I think observing a lot of the blunders and a lot of the um, atrocities that the Russian army has inflicted on uh, the Ukrainian population and it has really tarnished the image of, of Russia, even among uh, the countries that previously might have supported him. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And obviously looking weak militarily doesn't support that image. The strongman, yeah. Also, as someone who's been following the Russian context for quite some years, were you surprised when Putin announced the partial military mobilization of the Russian population? And what did you think the impact of that might be for Putin domestically? I think that there is a bit of a misperception that there is this one stringent vertical of power, it was called at the beginning when Putin started to build it in the early 2000s. But there isn't this very direct line of command, I would say. There's definitely one decision-making process, but there's also a saying that the Kremlin has many towers, as in like you have different groups that are vying for Putin's uh, attention, and then eventually he takes the decision based on some of those towers that are craving his attention. And I think that right at the beginning of the full-scale war on the 24th of February, what we saw is that there was an attempt to minimize it. So it was just, it's not a war. You can go to prison for saying the word war. This is just a special military operation. Like the uh, Ukraine is not a country. So obviously there, there can be a war against the country. This is just something like a little thing that's not going to concern you. And that actually is related to the way Putin has structured his legitimacy in the Russian context. So the way he built his legitimacy was pretty much, okay, look, uh, in the 90s, there was chaos, there was economic destitution. And now I came and you have food in your fridge and everything is going well and all the countries respect us. I mean, to put it in simpler terms, so to say. 
So this legitimacy was built on this stability. So stability was a big part of his appeal to many people. And by declaring mobilization, he pretty much completely destroyed that perception of stability that his legitimacy is built upon. Another part of his legitimacy was also relying on the 2014, which is the Crimea annexation. So this is perception of Russia being the great power again, and this whole ideal feeling of belonging to a great power that was lost after the collapse of Soviet Union, according to many public opinion polls at the time. So these two issues here, now observing even now, it's very hard to conceal the defeat in Ukraine right now from the Russian population, and especially by announcing the mobilization, Putin pretty much is destroying the last remnants of his legitimacy among the broader population that might uh, have not been wanting to to do something with the war because it's a, it's a very traumatic idea to be confronted with that your country is destroying another country and why are they doing this? So um, now by declaring mobilization, pretty much is bringing the war to the homes of a lot of people who uh, previously did not want to be confronted with it. He's also destroying this kind of social contract that existed before that Russia is great, you have a good life, so don't meddle with me being the this authoritarian leader. And I guess I was surprised that he uh, did declare uh, mobilization. And right at the beginning, after reading the law, I, I, I said right away that this is not a partial mobilization. This is a, a mobilization mobilization. And it will bring the war much closer to a lot of people who didn't want to deal with it. And again, we're seeing a massive, massive flight of the population from the country because now they are confronted with the reality of the war at home. That's also something that would definitely undermine his reign in the immediate future. How long that will last for, we don't know, of course, but this is a massive, massive blow to his uh, legitimacy both from the pro-war kind of the party and the more, I guess, you can call it uninterested or depoliticized part of the population and obviously the, the liberal opposition to the war. So there is a, a significant part of the population that opposes the war that have been speaking out against the war, protesting, helping uh, Ukrainian refugees that ended up in Russia and then trying to get them out of Russia, providing them with a lot of you know necessities because the government pretty much shipped them out of Ukraine, but then in Russia they are left to their own devices. So obviously all of these parties are right, right now very much opposed to the to what is happening in Russia for different reasons, of course. But the pro-war party seemingly won in persuading Putin to declare mobilization because it was obvious that the Russian army could no longer push back the Ukrainian advances on the battlefield without more uh, reinforcements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not putting anything more specific into that law, you create uncertainty for everybody, like nobody's sure whether or not they will be drafted. You mm -hmm. see a lot of, you can take a look at the numbers, Kazakhstan, according to their own numbers, they accepted almost 100,000 people. So obviously, even just draining the economy from that kind of number of able-bodied men would deal a big blow to the economy in the first place. And this is uh, Kazakhstan alone. So obviously, there's a, a border crossing in different other countries, including uh, Mongolia, Georgia, and uh, Finland. Finland closed the borders, but still, we, we know that there is a significant drain, and it will be a, a big blow both to the draft, uh, although obviously, now that we know that the Russian authorities are pretty much uh, targeting um, ethnic uh, republics, where people are more removed from this ways of escaping the draft. There are also some numbers that Russian oppositional channels have acquired that shows that even with the same populations, like this, you have, for example, the Nizhny Novgorod, and you have Dagestan, you have the same exact population, 3.1 3 million. And yet the number of draftees from 
uh, Dagestan is twice the number of draftees from Nizhny Novgorod. So um, you can see that there's a, definitely the ethnic republics that are being targeted for the cannon fodder that Putin needs for his army. Mm-hmm. Where do you see all of this going? Do you think that the mobilization might be a kind of a decisive point where we do see some kind of tipping point around the view of Putin's legitimacy domestically? It's hard to predict. It's hard to say what will happen next, but it's definitely a massive, massive tipping point for the majority of the Russian population. Because, as I said, uh, the whole legitimacy was built on stability and sort of the West, mostly West, of course, respecting Russia as a great power. Both of those things are pretty much gone right now. There is no stability. And there's a lot of reports, especially by my colleagues who who are talking about economic sanctions actually making a much bigger effect on the Russian economy soon. And even in summer, we could already see a lot of consequences for the automotive industry, for instance, where people were either fired or furloughed. So the war is definitely coming home to a lot of people in in this way, of course, in the economic way, not in the actual bomb way, although you can also see there's some reports from, uh, let's say, Belgorod region where people are also fleeing the border areas because they are much closer to the to, to the war than the rest of the, the rest of Russia. I would definitely say it's a tipping point, but I don't know how long the tipping point would last for. Because if we're talking about precedents, it could be still a while before something else happens. And uh, another issue here is, of course, that Putin has built a massive, massive repression apparatus and a massive, massive loyal army around him. And even like his uh, personal army is about 50,000 people. So you have 50,000 people are personally loyal to him. And this kind of security apparatus that he has around him is incredibly large. And we've seen also quite a bit of action taken against the activists uh, who are trying to protest. And even reading so much as a poem uh, can land you in a, a police precinct and subject to uh, police abuse. So fortunately, an infamous case of, a, of an activist who was reading a poem and then he was uh, raped in a police station. So the lengths to which the security services in Russia are going to go to enforce compliance with the regime are quite significant. So it's hard to say when this tipping point of the repression would actually make the people no longer susceptible to the repression and they would actually protest en masse. But we don't know what will happen next. And a lot of my colleagues are also arguing that regime change will never actually come from below. It's much likely to come from another elite group that would be dissatisfied with the way Putin is handling the situation. Mm-hmm. I think that makes more sense than that we would see some kind of mass revolution due to protests against the war. But I guess also that perception of legitimacy would feed into the way in which other elites are going to respond and the type of actions that they might. Yes. Thank you so much, Lisa. I appreciate you being on the podcast today. It's been a really interesting discussion and thanks for sharing your perspective. Thank you so much for the wonderful questions. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music.